First, I think happy employee and employer partners for us great customer experience is important. Secondly, technology driven products that improve the lives of the workers across the region. That's great tech and happy and motivated Gajigasa team with a lot of career growth opportunities. That's a great team. So I would put great under these three buckets. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and fintech is one of the key growing areas in Southeast Asia. Yet, building financial services for the unbanked in the emerging markets within the region represents a major challenge. With me today, I have Vidit Agrawal, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Gaiji Gesa. Vidit, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bernard, for having me. A big fan of your show since 2016. Yes, and probably we know each other way back. So I would be pretty curious to know about your origin story after you completed university. Since you're here for the first time, how did you start your career? When you talk about university, first time I heard about entrepreneurship was in a talk of yours way back in 2006, not making you feel old at all. I started my career in banking in the time of financial crisis. Did that for a few years, realized it wasn't my cup of tea. I had spent some time at Silicon Valley through the NUS Overseas College Program, so reached out to one of my contacts there, Travis Kalanick. He was one of my project mentors, and he had started Uber in 2010. And I reached out to him in 2012 and said, would love to join Uber. I had a few conversations and got hired as the first employee of Uber in Asia way back that time. It's been an amazing five years there, did roles in management, market launching, started a car rental company out of nowhere, later called Lion City Rentals, did partnerships. After five years, decided to move to Caro as a group CEO and with a lot of focus on international markets, spent a decent chunk of my time in Thailand for Caro. After that, joined Stripe to lead business development for APAC. Did that for a couple of years, and during the time of COVID, when I was sitting at home and talking to my wife, we both decided to start a company, which is now called Gajigesa. And so here's the thing. Now I'm really the student learning from the master. <laughs> Very kind. So from Uber to Stripe, what are the things you have learned in high-growth companies that can be brought to building startups? Well, I've been very lucky to have worked in companies like Uber and Stripe. And there's something unique about these companies. The first thing that's very striking for me is culture. And again, Uber and Stripe have unique cultures, which I've tried to bring to Gajigesa. When we think about Uber, a few things that stuck with me was the principles of the company, like be a hustler, be an owner, not a renter. So there was always this thinking process of owning a business and driving it forward at Stripe. It was a very user-first mentality, always building great products. And again, these are the values which I brought to Gajagasa. Secondly, one of the lessons I learned at both these companies was never, ever compromise on the quality of hiring. Both these companies hired top talent. It took some time to hire those right people across the world, but it never compromised on quality. And again, something I've learned in due course. And lastly, when I think about Uber and Stripe, both have always thought about building scalable products. Whenever you're thinking about a product, you're thinking about solution, you're launching a new market, always the thinking is around scale. How do I take this product to 10x? How do I take this product to 20x? Whatever are we building, is it going to last in the long run? And that, for me, was a big lesson because in banking, when I started with my career, it was a very different culture. So I think those are the three lessons I would like to highlight 
uh, as my key learnings at Uber and Stripe. How about the interesting career lessons that you can share with the audience, given that you met Travis Kalanick and it became the first Uber employee for Asia Pacific? Yeah, when I think about my career, I would define it as all over the place because I've done so many different things in the last decade. But jokes aside, when you think about career lessons, the first thing, and it's often mentioned, but it's very important, is taking risks. Our world is changing so fast. Careers, industries that existed 10 years ago may not exist today. And the industries which did not exist 10, 15 years ago are flourishing, are the growth players. So it's very important to be ready to take risks in your career, not be comfortable in where you are. Also, I think it's very uh, important and one should be comfortable switching verticals and roles. There are jobs which don't exist today, which were thriving 20 years ago. And there are jobs today which are big, which may not be important in 10 years. So one should be very comfortable switching the roles they are in. Similarly for verticals, you know, keep taking up that challenge and keep driving towards testing new things. Another thing I would mention is people say titles don't matter. I believe titles matter. It is a sign of a a growth in your career, the growth in your compensation, which is important. But I think the important thing here is also the hunger to learn. We go through different phases, ups and downs in our career, and sometimes things slow down, which is okay. Uh, But it's always very important to be very hungry to learn new things, learn different skill set, learn about new industries that are coming along. And lastly, in 2018, I read this book called Uh, 100-year life, which talks about how our lives are going longer over the past century. And it's not just, you know, starting career at the age of 22, retiring at 55 and dying at 60. Careers are expanding. And it left a deep impact on me where now I think about taking right pauses in my career. The last one I took was in 2018. Then before I started Gajigas, I took about three months to think about what I really wanted to do. And I feel like each pause is the foundation for your next five years of career. So it's very much okay to take that break, to travel, to ask yourself questions on what you really want to do next in the short span, short and midterm of your career. That's great advice to give. I understand that you also have been profiled as a known angel investor. I'm very curious to learn this. What are the leading indicators that you use to evaluate your investment decisions on startups? Bernard, I've been very lucky to be on both sides of the stable. I've been angel investing since 2014, and I've invested in a variety of companies. I generally come in at a very early stage, often the first check-in. So either there is an idea and maybe two slides, or there is a working MVP, which may break during the presentation. I really don't worry about all this. For me, and again, slightly cliched, but founder predicates everything. The attitude of founder, their ability to think big, to scale, their operational capability to run a company. Like some people are great storytellers, but not great operators. And being an operator is really important for me. Hunger and being open-minded. And lastly, a founder that's honest. And that often reflects in the conversation. I'm very comfortable when I talk to a founder and the founder in the middle of the conversation says, I don't know, actually. Um, I haven't thought about it. And that's totally fine. It just shows the humbleness of the founder that they are ready to accept that they've started exploring their idea, but there's a lot more, you know, blue ocean out there. This is where I invest in founders more than anything. So we come to the main subject of the day, which is 
Gaiji Gesser and FinTech for the Unbank in Southeast Asia. I wanted to start off my first question. What is the inspiration behind Gaiji Gesser? Well, I wish I could take the credit here, but all the credit goes to my wife, Martina. She spent her last 10 years in factories in Indonesia and Philippines trying to credit score the unbanked customer, has a lot of experience outside the, you know, the blue big walls of our cities. And when she was thinking about her next move, she had one thing which she wanted to do was to improve the lives of blue collar workers and provide them access to clean, responsible capital. She started doing a lot of research where she spoke to about 40 different business owners across Indonesia, over 300 employees. And a common theme that kept on coming was that this, getting access to their own salaries was very challenging. And that is how we started with the goal of looking at solutions, how we can improve the lives of workers and provide them access to their own capital and the model of EWA, which we were looking at across the world, which has been very successful in US, Europe, we decided to adapt to Asia. That's how Gajigasa was born. So if I draw forward to today, what is the vision and mission for Gajigasa then? Well, Gajigasa is a financial wellness platform powered by earned wage access that empowers employees to take full control of their wages. When you look at Indonesian market, there are 48 million employed Indonesians making less than 700 US dollars a month. 30% of them have taken loans through informal channels like loan sharks or predatory lenders in the last one year. With Gajigensa, we want to make their salary accessible to all of them. We want to make sure that they do not end up with predatory and they are lending. They do not end up with loan sharks. That is our vision and mission. There is something indeed interesting. Before we actually dive deeper into the company, the, there is something I would like you to help me to baseline. Can you talk about what an unbanked customer is in an emerging market such as Indonesia? Sure. The textbook definition of unbanked customer is someone who does not have access to financial products and services like payments, savings accounts, credit, insurance, transaction etc. and somebody who makes less than five US dollars uh, or less per day. When you think about Indonesia, there are 275 million people and according to government stats, 70% of them fall under the unbanked line, which means 180 million people uh, in Indonesia are unbanked. Now, when you start peeling the onion in the head and when you start digging deeper, one of the important metrics which a lot of startups, not just us, look at is bankable unbanked customer or in simple terms, underbanked customer. Now, the definition of underbanked customer would be somebody who has access to financial products but hasn't used them in the last three months. According to a Deloitte report, this number holds at 110 million people across Indonesia. And this is a target market and not just us. A lot of fintech startups going after the blue collar segment, they target this 110 million people in Indonesia. If I double click a little bit on this, why is it so difficult for bank customers or even under bank customers to get access to financial services? I mean, people live in uh, developed worlds. I don't think they have that appreciation of why is it so difficult to get access to these financial services. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit. I think there are multiple challenges out there uh, in getting access to financial services. And it depends on the market you're in, but one could be education. 
often the person who is underbanked or unbanked does not have the right education to really value the financial services. And this goes back to the old story of putting all your money under your pillow and sleeping because a lot of people think that is the safest solution. Secondly, uh, because the a lack of education is there, uh, a lot of the blue-collar workers do not uh, how to choose the best available solution and often end up with, in Indonesia, we use this word pinjol, which is a loan shark or a predatory lender. So that is often the case, which again becomes a cycle uh, which the blue-collar workers get stuck in. And thirdly, when you look at the market, a lot of the banks or traditional sector has not been able to penetrate to blue-collar segment by saying that either it's not profitable or is it too much work. And therefore, often a lot of these solutions are not even available to the underbanked customer or unbanked customer. And that is where a lot of the tech companies have come in, taken that mantle and tried to build reaches to the blue collar workers, to the unbanked customers across Southeast Asia. So because I understand that Gajigesa focuses on financial inclusion and also offering earn which access and other services for workers in Indonesia. Can you describe the market opportunity and how does Gajigesa actually serve these customers? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm going to use some numbers. Uh, there are 90 million Indonesians who are salaried employees across the country. And in Indonesia, we follow the format of monthly salaries, which is quite different from the US or Philippines, where people get paid twice a month. Over 60% of these 90 million people have taken a loan in the last one year which means that there is a high propensity of lending and requiring that capital outside their regular salary. Lastly, the government sees pitchall or the loan sharks as a huge problem and has been very focal uh, on this in the last four years especially. So as Gajigesa, we partner with the employers to offer an employee wellness platform powered by earned wage access. Employees get full control over their wages, which they can withdraw when in need or purchase multiple other solutions on the platform. All this happens under the purview of the employer, and all the usage of Gajigesa gets deducted from the salary at the end of the month. Our focus is uh, providing responsible capital to the blue-collar workers, is to provide financial resilience to these workers. So how many employers are they currently on the Gajigesa platform in Indonesia, and what is the onboarding process like? for them? Yeah, uh, we started in Jan 2021, which was last year, and we've seen great acceptability of the product across Indonesia. Today, we have over 200 enterprises that are using um, Gajagasa and providing the benefits to their employees. And these are factories, these are production companies, these are schools, these are hotels, these are restaurants. Across the board, we see that Gajigesa has a great product fit. One of our strengths is our seamless onboarding. So we, whenever we reach out to employer, once they are ready to go, we can onboard tens of thousands of employees in a matter of days. And then when we go live, it's a seamless experience for both the employer and employee. And that has been one of the reasons we've been so successful. So what are the key services once they get onboarded on the platform? Yeah, so when I think about our services, I would describe them into three key pillars. First is withdrawal, which means that the blue-collar worker can withdraw their pro rata salary, their accrued salary at any point of time into any preferred bank account in Indonesia or any of the big e-wallets in Indonesia. That, for me, is the withdrawal product. 
Secondly, the blue collar workers can also purchase multiple products on the platform like Pulsa, which is prepaid phone top-ups, data packets, vouchers, into bill payments, and whatever they use, again, gets deducted from their salary at the end of the month. And a third pillar, which is hugely important pillar for us and something employers love, is financial education. So we provide online uh, education, we provide offline education, specially targeted towards workers who make about 300 to 500 US dollars a month. And these are either done through training modules, short, long, proper courses, all provided through the platform, targeted towards upskilling the blue-collar workers, giving them an ability to plan their finances better. So do you work with partners or do you just provide the education them by yourselves at the moment? We're doing both, actually. So we've built some basic products where, especially in the offline space, a lot of the sessions are run by a team. But as a startup, one of the key things you have to do is focus. And education is not a vertical we are in. So we have done partnerships with other startups as well, where you know we provide their educational modules to workers across Indonesia. So what is the business model for Gadget Guesser? From what I understand is that you don't charge interest rates or require collateral. How do you do the business model then? No, absolutely. So we do not charge any interest rate because, you know, the employees are withdrawing their own capital, their own salary. So think of us as a flexible payroll. But we do charge a platform fee for the access to the platform. And that is totally dependent on the usage of the platform. Secondly, we do have other revenue sources as well, which is through SaaS fee for the multiple products we provide to the employers. That includes employee management tools and payroll. So I would say two revenue streams, employee and employer, largely based on the usage of the platform. So does that mean that when your your platform actually would actually evolve towards maybe providing some form of a credit scoring for the unbanked, given that the platform can somehow now construct profile of the users through their wages on and the use of the services on the platform then? No, absolutely. I think you've kind of answered your question in the question itself. When you think about blue-collar workers, Often the challenge is getting clean data. And at Gajigesa, we have access to wages. We have access to their salary data. We know which employer they're working for. When they switch employers, often the second employer is also on Gajigesa. So we know that behavior. We also know their usage patterns, how many times they withdraw, what products are they using. And because you know we work with their employers, so we also understand how many days of the week of the month they're doing overtime, which also reflects as a behavior pattern. How many, what is the absenteeism rate for them? So a lot of this data is very powerful. And like you said, in the future, it can evolve into a very powerful credit scoring engine for the unbanked customer, which really does not exist today. And I have to say this, very impressive that Gajigesa has recently raised a 6.6 million pre-series A round. I want to just ask, how was the round assembled and who are your key investors? Well, we've been very lucky to have been able to choose the investors who are aligned with our vision and who we enjoy working with, who we trust. Last round was led by Mass Mutual Ventures with participation from January Capital and the likes of Patrick Valuho and the North Star Partners and multiple other strategic investors. Our goal has always been to bring people along who are aligned with our vision, who believe in what we are doing and work with them to grow Gajagesa to provide benefits to blue-collar workers. Given that you raised a new round, what are the key things now you'll be focusing on then? Well, with more money comes more pressure. 
but a couple of things we are very much focused in is to deeply penetrate the Indonesian market. I don't think it's a winner's take all market, but first mover advantage has its own benefits. And we want to be the first uh, touch of earned wage access and the solutions to any employer in Indonesia. Uh, so that's going to be our focus uh, of deeply penetrating and making sure every industry has been exposed to earned wage access and Gajagasa. Secondly, a lot of our product development in the last one year has been based on the feedback we are getting from our users. And in the last three to six months, one of the common feedback heard from both our employees and as well as employer partners is the need for better financial education. So that is something we also want to spend more time on, either building it ourselves or through partnerships but be able to provide a full-stack solution which really helps workers across Indonesia plan their finances better. I'm pretty curious since I got you here and I think you have already operated across different parts of Southeast Asia. I want to get your insight on this. What are your thoughts on the fintech space in Southeast Asia and how does one need to think about the go-to market strategy in emerging markets such as Indonesia and Philippines? I mean, uh, Singapore is a developed market. It, sees, it is more like an anomaly, but I think the actual markets is the type of markets that you are actually deeply penetrating into, for example, Indonesia and Philippines. Oh, great question. And when you think about Southeast Asia, it, it could be misleading because often we say there are 600, nearly 600 million people. So after India and China, it's the second, third biggest region. But it's also 10 very unique markets. Um, it's not very homogenous. So I think that's one data point one really needs to understand that. And that is one of the beauties of the region. Secondly, when you look at the India and China market, I would say they're slightly ahead when it comes to fintech. Um, in Southeast Asia, we're about like one and a half to two years behind solving a lot of the ground problems which are being tackled in India and China, but at a different scale. So I think that is a key to understand as well. And thirdly, when you think about fintechs, the founder pedigree, the founder profile is slightly different to other startups. When we think about fintechs, a lot of founders come from big corporates. They may come from Visa, MasterCard, Amex. They may come from banks who have a few years of experience, who've seen these problems in their everyday, everyday jobs and have decided to really launch a fintech company and get their hands dirty. And that is slightly different from other verticals. And when you think about go-to-market strategy, not very different this time from India and China. Speed is really the essence. You know, in these markets, sometimes you have to move very fast, a lot faster than a developed world. Our markets are evol evolving really fast with a lot of competition and unfortunately, a lot of copycats out there. So for a startup, it's very important to be nimble, experimenting, testing things and moving fast and launching and failing sometimes quickly. Lastly, what I would also say, and since you mentioned Indonesia and Philippines, both the governments of Indonesia and Philippines, the fintech regulators in markets have been very supportive to testing out technology. They fully understand that if we need changes in the, you know, the fintech space, it will come from startups. And they've been very supportive either to providing bursaries or just opening sandbox programs for new ideas rather than shutting them down. Given your experience on the ground, not just with Indonesia and Philippines, but also even with Thailand, uh, do you find that language localization is also key to how you go into a go-to market in these countries? Absolutely. I think being local in 
each country is really important. And one of the things you have to do is not just, you know, tell your story locally or have local people running the company, but localize the product in terms of language, colors, experience. Everything um, has to be telling the story from the ground rather than feeling a foreign company. Even though we are markets which are very close to each other, like Thailand, Indonesia and Philippines, Still, the cultures are so different that if I were to take Gajiges as it is and try to put in another market, it may not be very acceptable. So even as a company, uh, we'll have to think a lot about making our product very local to the individual who stays in Philippines or Thailand, who can relate to our story and we can relate to the problems and challenges they're facing in their everyday life. So I think now the world has been very fascinated with Web3 cryptocurrencies. And I'm, I'm actually seeing a lot of activity in decentralized finance as well. I think when we think about fintech in Southeast Asia, I think it's, it's also evolving differently from the rest of the world. One question I probably like to just seek your thoughts on it. And given that you have worked with Stripe before as well, do you see a convergence of technologies such as cryptocurrencies or Web3 with fintech from your point of view? Yeah, by definition, fintech is tech-enabled finance. And tech keeps evolving from desktop to internet to mobile phones to Web3. Fintech companies will get into Web3 and Web3 companies will get into fintech, which is already happening. But in my view, it's also the next big thing. Take, for example, lending. Why can't the excess capital in the developed world be efficiently deployed as smart loans for SMEs in the developing world? There are a lot of inherent efficiencies that exist in our capital financial system, some for good reason, but some are just an output of limitations in the underlying technology. Web3 fundamentally changes the game by providing for decentralized trust and enabling contracts through code. And finance is essentially exchange of value through trust and contracts. So for me, definitely there would be a big combination conversions of Web3 and FinTech in the coming few years. And you see that at some point, even for a company like yours, we also think about how to leverage Web3 into your services for the unbanked and the underbank as well. Absolutely. That is something we're thinking through. I think for a company that's working with a user base that may not have a good understanding of technology, we really need to build intelligence on the ground and the story of where Web3 fits into our broader picture. But absolutely, that is something we'd love to incorporate this year and next year. So for some founders, serving the Indonesian market alone is enough. I mean, we're talking about 275 million population and then, you know, I think they focus on that. One question I like to really tap your brain on is, what do you think about geographical expansion in Southeast Asia? Now your focus is in Indonesia and it's an extremely big market. I mean, if you were to think of that, you could comparatively like something like thinking about an Indian market and a Chinese market, which, which actually the local domestic market would just you know take you for many, many years. How do you decide when to shift gears into getting into another market? Or maybe the opportunity is just big enough for Indonesia alone? Great question. And just before we started this podcast, I was reading on TechCrunch about C Group shutting down in India. So it's a fascinating question. But I believe that geographical expansion is something which is a double-edged sword. 
We've talked about being local in our last question, and I think that's absolutely important when you think about expansion. And this is something I saw at Uber that initially it took us a while to be localized, but as we thought about adding products that were localized, understanding our users, we saw that the expansion was quite successful. Expansion is difficult because it leads to distraction and lack of focus for the founder. And one needs to be really prepared for launching in new markets. Expansion also requires a lot of human resource as well as finance. We always say that if you want to launch in India, be prepared with at least 25 to $50 million, otherwise one's not going to survive. So I think it's very important for a founder to think about the right time, um, the right resources, and it leads to growth in the business, definitely. It's a great story, but don't do it only for the story because as a founder, you're raising your next round because it's going to hurt. And I've seen so many startups started expanding, realized either they were spreading too thin or they didn't even understand the international market and had to shut down. So expansion is fun, but one needs to be just very careful and to know themselves whether they're ready for this uh, new launch. And how would you make that decision to shift and look into another market? Say, if let's say you're pretty big in Indonesia and you want to expand out, what's the mental model in doing that geographic expansion from your perspective? I think I would ask myself a few questions. One, is my playbook ready for Indonesia and can I port that for another market? Now, if my playbook is about 50% there because I know I'll never be 100%, I think it's probably the right time to start thinking about expanding. We today, I believe, are about 20 to 30%. We're still learning. So I think, you know, being ready with a playbook which you can use. Second, which we talked about, did you really understand the localization requirements? Sometimes, you know, sitting in Indonesia, I may have perception around how Thailand operates, but may or may not be the case. So I think that is the next factor you need to understand, the localization requirements. Thirdly, capital and resource requirements. And one of the resource which is a key when it comes to internationalization is leadership resource. Um, I can hire five people in Thailand who will be able to run Gajagasa, but would they really believe in the model? Would they really understand? Initially, as a founder, I have to be really involved. And is my Indonesian market in a great state, in a good state, which I can take my time off and go international? So I think these are the factors I would think about. And last, of course, is regulation. Uh, depending upon the industry you're in, there are certain industries which regulation really doesn't matter, especially if you're a SaaS product. Whereas if you're a ride-hailing company or if you're an insure tech product, you really have to go and think about the regulation of your international market. How does that operate? What are the requirements? There might, especially with fintech, we have seen certain governments in international markets not being very open for an international company to enter. Think of the payments world. So there are various factors at play. And if I can get a lot of ticks in my boxes in my thinking process, probably that's the right time I'm ready to go international. That is a very good insight. And now I'm going to come to my final question. What does great look like for Gaiji Gessa then? <laughs> First, I think happy employee and employer partners for us, great customer experience is important. Secondly, technology-driven products that improve the lives of the workers across the region. That's great tech. And happy and motivated Gajigasa team with a lot of career growth opportunities. That's a great team. So I would put great under these three buckets.
that is a great point to close off. But of course, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get you back or even your wife back onto the podcast to have this conversation again. Absolutely. So, Envidic, many thanks because I'm actually enjoying the part of playing the student this time around and learning from you. In closing, I have two questions for you. The first question is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Well, I tend to go back to books and read them again and again. And a couple of my go-to books are, one is Never Split the Difference by Neil Voss. Neil spent, I think, 30 years in CIA. Uh, He's done a lot of hostage negotiations and uses that to teach us lessons around negotiation. And overall, it's just a fun read as well. So highly recommend Never Split the Difference. Secondly is a growth handbook by Elard Gill. I never read the book in a go. It's for me is like a textbook where if today I'm struggling in marketing, I would go and read the marketing chapter and learn from it. So highly recommend the growth handbook to any founders out there. And how can my audience find you? How do you reach me? I'm always on LinkedIn, LinkedIn linkedin.com slash vidit.agrawal. I'm also on Twitter, though not very active, slash V-I-D-A-G-R-A-W-A-L. Is there any other things you want to plug? Like how do they find Gajigesa? Um, so Gajigesa, uh, you know, go to gajigesa.com. As an employer, just drop your details and our team would reach out. But you could find Gajigesa on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn. We always love to share our thinking around employee benefits and how you know, we could make lives better for blue-collar workers across the region. And definitely you can find this podcast on any podcast platform and you can also tweet out to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. We have a LinkedIn page and obviously give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on Spotify as well. Many thanks for taking the time out to actually have this conversation with me and I look forward to hear from you soon. Thanks a lot, Bernard, for the conversation. It was great chatting with you. Run it, run it, run it.